Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome everybody. Uh, thanks to everybody who's joining us in the room and to all the people who are watching online. Welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and I'm substituting my colleague Alex Thomas, who can't be with us this afternoon. But hopefully you haven't come for him or for me. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by someone who will probably go down as one of the most well-known scientists in the country and possibly the highest ever profile government chief scientific advisor since the position was created under Harold Wilson in the 1960s. Um, Sir Patrick Valance is the government chief scientific advisor, though he just informed me that uh, he steps down next Friday and is using... 16.6% of his remaining... Anyway, we won't go to that. Uh, He's Chief Scientific Advisor and National Technology Advisor. Before joining government, he was President of R&D at GlaxoSmithKline from 2012 to 2017 and on the board. Joined that company in May 2006 as Head of Drug Discovery. During his period as head of R&D, found many new medicines, many new medicines approved for use worldwide, diseases ranging from cancer and rare disease in children to asthma and HIV. Before joining GSK, he was a clinical academic, professor of medicine, and led the division of medicine at UCL. So, uh, Sir Patrick, you might think we were incredibly lucky to have Sir Patrick as chief scientific advisor uh, when we had to deal with the pandemic. So how are we going to run this? Um, so we're just going to kick off with just one or two opening comments. I've then got a whole big lynch list of questions that I'm going to ask. Please post your questions. If you're watching online, please post them on Slido. I think by now you know how to do that. Remember, this is all on the record. So there you at least have the anonymous button you can use. Um, if you're in the room, use the rather lower tech method if you don't want to use Slido of putting your hand up, if you're in the overspill room, you'll need to come into this room, which is possibly even lower tech, to do that when we start the Q&A. Uh, we'll be tweeting from IFG events, hashtag IFG science, so do tweet along. Um, so I think that's all you probably need to know from me. Uh, so without further ado, because we've only got an hour, over to you, Sir Patrick. It's a pleasure Thanks to very much, Jill. Um, well, uh, I've been in post for coming up for five years. I finish at the end of uh, next week. And uh, soon after I started, I came here and uh, was interviewed by Bromer Maddox. And at the time, I talked about the importance of science right the way across government, the importance of the Chief Scientific Advisor Network, the importance of having areas of research interest explained by departments so people knew what they needed to understand. And we spoke about all the expected things at that time, Brexit, Europe, and uh, the importance of the basic science infrastructure in the UK and industry science. I also made a comment at the time, which was that um, it was important that a government chief scientific advisor gave evidence and scientific evidence to government, not opinions just because they're a scientist. And I think that distinction between giving scientific advice based on evidence and giving an opinion is important. It may sound obvious, but actually the role is to give evidence, to give the scientific assessment of where things are. The other thing that um, I said at the time was that science isn't absolute it is self-correcting. I mean, the nature of science is we overturn things and we find out something new. And and that's an important point, which I came to realise, of course, is something quite different from 
how politicians may think who don't come from a scientific background. So as a scientist, there's something we quite like, which is to find out that what we thought wasn't quite right, and somebody's discovered something new, and we've had to think differently. And very often, you know, oh, that's sort of interesting, I'd never thought of that. And, and, and you come up with, with, with a new approach. Of course, the problem is for politicians and journalists, that's called a U-turn. <laughs> and, and so there is a fundamental difference which needs to be, needs to be resolved. Anyway, um, four prime ministers, six chancellors, seven secretaries of state, and ten science ministers later, um, I'm here again today and looking forward to speaking to Jill. Uh, the other reflection I, I would make is that uh, in 2018, when Bronwyn was speaking to me, she opened the session by saying there couldn't be a more interesting time to talk about science in government. <laughs> And uh, the only thing that was missing was a crisis. Um, <laughs> and, and I sort of feel that possibly she jinxed things uh, uh, for, for my tenure with that comment. So that's really interesting. I would point out, of course, that, as Professor Patrick does, that correlation is not causation. So we're not holding him and his appointment <laughs> responsible for that massive churn in uh, I'm quite intrigued because obviously the pandemic threw dependence on science in government into possibly the starkest, most immediate relief. And many of us will know you from day after day having to stand at that podium with uh, Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock explaining what was going on with the famous charts and what the advice was there. Uh, Ministers kept on saying they were following the science. Uh, Was that a great relief to you as government chief scientific advisor or was that an area of concern to you that they they seem to be almost saying, well, we have to do what we're doing because the science is dictating things? Well, uh, 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 the first comment is that that can't possibly be right in the sense that the science is an input, it's not an output. It's an input measure to decision-making. Mm. So it's great that people wanted to listen to the mm. science, and I think that was absolutely important. And one of the reflections I would mm. have over my time is that I think when I joined, very often pushing science advice mm. into decision-making and policy consideration and thought processes in departments was a push. Mm. You know, it wasn't a pull. And I think it became a very strong pull over the course of uh, the pandemic and, uh, and other areas as well. And um, the role of uh, science advice is, of course, to make sure that decision makers, policy makers, ministers have some assessment of what the current state of understanding is. They then need to mix that with all sorts of other inputs, whether that's um, uh, economic input, whether it's um, uh, input from politics, whether it's operational considerations, and decisions need to come out at the end of that. So I think it's it's, it's absolutely too much of a shorthand to say following the science to mean science says this, therefore I do it. I don't think that's correct. And as part of that sort of following the science, the... uh, uh, Scientific Advisory Committee on Emergency SAGE became very high profile as a sort of source of science. Um, in reflection, do you think we were very well set up because of the SAGE process? Or, you know, if you were advising your successor on how to handle a future emergency, are there any sort of big lessons out of the way SAGE worked during the pandemic that you would, uh, you would want her to take into account? Yeah. Well, um, the first thing to say is that one of the 
great things about being in this post in the UK is you mm. can pull on a lot of science. Mm. So we've got a great science infrastructure. We've got lots of really world-class institutions. We've got very strong academic science. We've got very strong mm. industrial science. And the ability to get those people around the table quickly mm. is really valuable. And uh, in interacting with colleagues around the world, and indeed we had a meeting of a, a, variety, a number of um, European science advisors in Paris last June where we looked at mechanisms during... Uh, um, COVID to ask, you know, what worked and what mm. didn't work. I think there was pretty unanimous view that having a pre-existing system mm. that you can set up mm. quickly mm. within hours is an advantage. And that's certainly what we had with the SAGE system. So I think that, that really works. I think um, SAGE had never, ever stood up for anything like mm. this duration of time. I mean, mm. it was normally one, two meetings, maybe four meetings. The idea that it would go for over 100 meetings... Mm was unheard of. So there are lots of lessons mm. to learn about how you can make that work because people who thought they might have come for a meeting or two mm. were still doing it mm. two years later and their academic work went on hold, their teaching work had to be mm. looked after by other people. So we've done a series of lessons learned as we've gone through and those are being implemented and put mm. in place. So I think Angela, my um, successor, knows them very well, mm. and I think she's going to be in a good position to make sure that we get SAGE right for the right emergency. Uh, but the basic structure, the basic concept that you bring together experts from different disciplines, mm. and those people can come up with a current state of what it looks mm. like with the uncertainties associated mm. with that, so that ministers can have that view presented to them clearly rather than 55 different mm. views being sort of shouted at them at the same time. I think that is a very valuable structure and one that's important to keep. So one of the things that must have struck you during that was the contrast between the way in which the scientific advice was being presented quite transparently uh, through SAGE and yet other considerations that ministers had to take into account, like the economic uh, advice was, you know, just coming from the Treasury and the Business Department, the normal routine way the government, uh, government operates. Did you sort of think, well, actually, maybe the government would be better with a set of, you know, sages covering off other areas that obviously government had to take into account when it was actually making its final policy decision? So if you like, you had parity of input. Well, I, I do think it's really important that these things are transparent. Mm. And I think one of the advantages of the fact that all of the... Uh, papers and the minutes of SAGE in the mm. public domain as quick as we mm. get them into the public domain means that people can say, well, that's what the science was, was, was presented as and I can see that decision. And obviously mm. there are other things between the two of them. I think it's beneficial to have that advice public and mm. I think it would be beneficial to have other advice public because advice is advice mm. and the decision is a complicated thing. And one of the things I have to say, I have learned a lot over, over that period in particular was how difficult it is to make policy. Mm. And you'll know that. Mm. But, I mean, it's difficult. It's not, it's not as easy mm. as many of us may think, that you, you can just drum up a policy like you do down the pub or something, chatting mm. to them, wouldn't it be good to do X? Mm. Well, it's complicated. Mm. And so I think the inputs should be visible. Mm. And then the decision and what the output is, of course, will be visible. And you can see how the two things link. And just sticking with this, I'm going to move on from COVID, but it obviously has been a really dominant uh, dominant piece of this. I wonder what you thought when you saw one of your predecessors, David King, setting up 
independent sage with a sort of bit of an implicit critique of the uh, of the government official sage process. Do you think, oh, that's helpful, that's something I'd better do when I leave government, <laughs> or what on earth does he want to do this for? Oh, well, I was... Um... So, so David called me and said, you know, he was thinking of setting up an independent group. And, and I, I, I was aware, because I'd, I'd met David several times, obviously, and I'd met him before I took up the job. And uh, um, there's one thing that was in common with the uh, previous chief scientific advisors that I met uh, before I came, which is they all thought everyone else had done a bad job. Mm. Uh, so that seems to be... Uh, and he was particularly uh, forceful on that, so I wasn't that surprised. Um, I did ask him not to call it sage. I think that was very. I think mm. that was very confusing, um, and I think it was a pity that mm. that happened. Uh, I really welcome the fact that there were lots of mm. bodies set up mm. to give advice. I mean, it's difficult. Mm. This was a really difficult, unknown thing, and it was good. The Royal Society set up bodies. Others set up bodies as well, mm. and it was useful to have those different mm. inputs. There is one other thing, though, that I think which is important, mm. which is the distinction between science advice mm. and policy opinion, mm. and. I think there was a difficulty sometimes in some of the bodies that were set up in distinguishing between those two. And we all had policy yeah. opinions, and those are important, yeah. but they are not the same as science advice. I think that's a really interesting, interesting distinction, one that a lot of people you know, quite struggle with uh, in academia and uh, beyond. Um, I just want to come... Kate Bingham's written a book, which is, you know really fascinating account of her experience in the vaccine task force and you know you emerge with huge amounts of credit uh, from that as an absolutely critical player in it, both its inception and its effectiveness but she's quite critical of the lack of skills in government the lack of science in government and how we basically had to sort of cobble together this sort of network of outsiders i just wonder whether you when you read or looked at Kate Bingham's critique, uh, whether you thought, yes, I recognise that, she's absolutely right, or no, I think, yeah, I'm not quite on the same page as you here, Kate. Well, I absolutely think it was necessary. And, and one of the reasons when um, I set up the mm. Vaccines Task Force in the beginning mm. was it was obvious we didn't have the skills mm. in government. We needed to have people with manufacturing mm. expertise, mm. with industrial science mm. expertise, with really deep knowledge of the portfolio of vaccines that was being put together in companies around mm. the world. And so I brought Kate mm. in and I brought various mm. others in as well for that reason, because we needed that sort mm. of expertise. And Kate brings a particular skill set around portfolio mm. of science mm. um, approaches from her venture work. Um, so I completely agree we didn't have the mm. skills. And actually, in a sense, why would government have somebody who was a manufacturing mm. expert sitting there hoping that there'd be a, mm. something for them to do? Yeah, mm. so, so that was not surprising. Yeah. Um, and that group was very mm. effective. Now, to her broader point about science in government, um, soon after I, I took this mm. post up, I wrote uh, together with Treasury something called mm. the Science Capability Review, mm. where we asked that mm. question, so it's 2019, mm. and the answer was there aren't enough scientists mm. in government. There aren't enough experts. Mm. There aren't enough engineers. Um, you take a problem like net zero, mm. you need engineers mm. in, in this. Mm. And so there aren't enough people with that. And we've gone about trying to recruit mm. more. I think we've got uh, very good chief scientific mm. advisors across the department now. Each of them has a proper structure around them. So they're not mm. lone operators. Mm. They're able mm. to actually function mm. in departments. Um, but the other thing we found out mm. was, and Kate quotes this uh, from that report, um, 10% of the fast stream had a STEM degree. Mm. 
Now, I don't know what the right answer is, but it's not 10%. Mm. I mean, so your future leadership of the civil service, which is where clearly that graduate scheme often leads to the mm. leaders, 10% with a, with a STEM degree. That isn't right. And I'm really pleased to say that there is now a 50% target on that, which, which feels, you know, I don't know what the right number is, but 50% seems like a reasonable thing to shoot for. So what do you think the offer needs to be to, if I'm a science graduate yep. and I've got lots of possibilities and one of the things on offer is going into the civil service fast stream, but I've got, you know, I'm a mathematician, so I've got lots of offers from banks offering me some ginormous salary to do something. You know, I could go into research. I could, you know, what is what offer does the civil service need to make? Because it's been trying to do this for ages. It's always been talking about getting more STEM graduates in, but it does seem to be a stubbornly hard nut. But we, we, we've um, on, on the science and engineering mm. fast stream, which is a subset of the fast stream. Mm. We've actually trebled the number of scientists. Mm. We don't have any problems at all recruiting. Mm. We have huge numbers of people wanted to come in on that specific mm. scheme. Um, and we have a very, you know, high high bar mm. to get in. So I, I don't think there's an intrinsic mm. problem here. Uh, there is an issue it, of, of certain things, like is the selection process designed in the wrong way? So in other words, you weed out people if they haven't got a particular background. I don't think so. We've looked at that. We don't see that. Mm. Where we do see a problem is we lose people between interview process and start date. And the reason is we're not quick enough. Because industry moves really mm. quickly. You know, you get an offer, you're in mm. post in a month. And so that needs to be mm. uh, sped up. And I think we need to be clear about what the offer is. And, and my, my simple way of expressing mm. this is I can't think of a single area of policy mm. or operations where science, engineering or technology mm. hasn't got something to say. So the idea that this is about scientists being scientists is not correct. It's about scientists, engineers, technologists being people who can influence and help with policy as well. So talking about economics in government, which at the time of Fulton was also sort of relatively yes. under-regarded yes. as a route to the top, um, one of the things that happened there was lots of economists entered the government economic service, but then crossed over and quite a few of them sort of ended up as cabinet secretary yep. or whatever. Um, is that a sort of lesson that maybe the people coming into the STEM far stream should at some sort of start off their career as scientists but as they get yeah. interested in the wider policy landscape, move across, uh, you know, maybe deputy director level? Do we make that easy enough to support people well, in that I transition? Uh, it's much easier than it was. So when I came in, um, I would speak to people who'd whisper to me, I'm actually a physicist. <laughs> and, and they were keeping it quiet yeah. because they were worried actually it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a benefit. That's not the case, mm. I think. And so it is getting better. And um, there's definitely the case that the, fast, the, the science and engineering fast stream, what I say to those people is there are three bits of a rotation I'd like you mm. to do. Why don't you do one thing mm. that's scientific? Mm. You know, go and do something mm. in a public sector research mm. establishment or in mm. a department which is obviously scientific. Mm. Do one rotation where it's a scientific subject area mm but you're not actually being a scientist, mm. so that might be a sort of climate type mm. thing, and do one where you're not a scientist at all and just understand what goes on in policy. And the reason that's important is um, Tamara Finkelstein, who's now mm. the Permanent Secretary at DEFRA, said to me um, a while ago, when she was a DG, mm. she said she had a science and engineering mm. fast streamer attached to her team, and she thought, what on earth am I going to do with this person? Mm. And after a few meetings, she realised 
that that individual was approaching the problem from a totally different mm. direction from everyone else mm. on her team. And she realised that that was a benefit to the team as a sort of form of diverse thinking. Mm. And so I think, you know, we need to get people into those roles. And then they get, they'll, some of them will end up as mm. scientists, some of them will end up as generalists. And I hope that we will see a, permanent, a, a cabinet secretary who comes from a science background. Very interesting. Well, Tamara, of course, has an engineering degree, I think. So, yep. uh, so yeah, maybe that's a tip. Um, I want to sort of move on to sort of, you know, just the way in which sort of the science sort of advice system works inside government in more normal times. Um, you have this network of government chief scientific advisors. They're quite unusual for uh, top of civil servants being predominantly recruited from outside and parachuting into departments and then being confronted with this whole range of sort of policy policy issues. So so how does that work? How do you do you see yourself as a community champion cause of you know evidence and science across government, working with you know other analytic professions? Or are people sort of, you know, very much focused on their own department, that relationship with their Secretary of State? Well, uh, the first thing is I think it's really important that they do come in for a short period. In other words, it's, mm. it's, it, for most of those jobs, it's three years plus two. Mm. Um, and I think that's about right, because the whole idea is they're coming from outside, they're bringing an outside mm. series of connections, and they're not career civil servants. Uh, as a network, we meet once a week. Mm. So um, uh, pretty much every, every, every week at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday morning we get together. Mm. And that prof- provides a really good look across mm. government and commonality of mm. areas. So they do work as a whole-of-government mm. network and they work in departments, obviously fulfilling the need of that, mm. that department. One of the things that has been important is they now have structures around them mm. because if you're a lone mm. operator and you come from outside, it's very difficult to work mm. out how to get things done. And all you can really do is comment on the things mm. that happen across mm. your desk or your own personal interest. I think it's, it's a much more sort of stable, systematic system mm. now. And, and, and going back to your comment about uh, economists, I met with Gus O'Donnell mm. before I started this mm. job, and he actually said to me exactly what you just said, which is economics wasn't always in the heart mm. of departments. Mm. It happened. Mm. You should do the same for science and technology. That's uh, that's. Really interesting. And um, do you sort of do you see very variable performance across departments? Are some departments more open to evidence, more willing to give the uh, scientific advisor, a, you know, a real say in the policy process? And there are others. We used to sometimes, when I was in government, talk about you know having you know advisors in a sort of box who were sort of you know we need an advice on this very specific question we'll ask the question they've answered the question thanks and we'll go off and make policy over here because they're the sort of specialist or whatever yeah. whereas others you know I worked at DEFRA with Bob Watson who absolutely loved the policy process such that I think um, the uh, Centre for Advancement Science and Engineering decided that he clearly had no impact on policy because he couldn't name the meetings he'd been at with the Secretary of State because I don't think there were any meetings the Secretary of State had that Bob wasn't there because there were just so many. It seemed to me they took rather the wrong conclusion out of that. But, you know, is there sort of now a real integration of that advice? Yeah, it's still, of course it's still variable. And, mm. and uh, I think there are departments that still... Um, sometimes don't realise why they need a, a science advisor and some that may still think, oh, well, I'll call the scientist when I need mm. the scientist, rather than the scientist is part of the executive team listening to the problems and able to, to engage. Mm. But I think it's much, it's, it's much more now scientists engaged on the executive team listening, contributing, mm. than sitting in a corner waiting to be called. It's, it's quite different. 
Right, that's really interesting. Now, I just want to come on to a couple more things. So I'm going to move to some of the questions here and get ready with your questions in the audience. Um, we've been through your background. It's very much sort of medical research, drugs or whatever. And yet you're credited by quite a lot of people with uh, converting the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, from being a bit of a climate sceptic who was sort of slightly ridiculing things like offshore wind in his columns to having this sort of green epiphany. And every traces back to a presentation you did on climate change to the former Prime Minister. I just wonder how easy it is. Non-scientists just lump, you know, there's the stuff we do and then there's science. But obviously it's very different to be a climate scientist, to be a medical researcher. So... Yeah, how do you sort of actually prepare yourself to give advice to a prime minister on something you know, like climate change, which is quite different? Well, the first thing is there's absolutely no way anyone who does this job can be an expert in all the areas you need to be an expert in. It's just not possible. Mm. So you're not an expert. Mm. You are somebody who understands science mm. and the scientific process mm. and engineering and can bring experts mm. together to hear what mm. they're saying. So in that particular example... Um, I didn't go and brief the Prime Minister on my own. I went with Mm. two or three real experts in climate and we decided how we would actually present the uh, evidence so that the Mm. Prime Minister could understand Mm. what the evidence base was. So it's important, even in the areas you know about Mm. as a government chief Mm. scientific uh, advisor, it's not your job to be Mm. the expert. Your job is to make sure that the view is properly assimilated, understood Mm. and presented in a way that not only gives the current state of play, Mm. but the uncertainties. Mm. And do you think politicians have got better, maybe through the experience of the pandemic, in dealing with sort of risk and uncertainty? Because quite often they look to evidence sort of give them a degree of comfort um, and aren't, as as you exactly said, you know, don't particularly like the idea that, things might change because you know, yeah. there's another thing. Well, I, th- I think it's a, really, it's a really big risk as a science advisor. If you present something as absolute, mm. you will have a problem mm. because it's going to change. And then, then, then non-scientists will say, well, hang on, you told me this and therefore I now don't believe anything mm. that, that I'm hearing. So you have to present the uncertainty mm. and the, the reasons that there is that uncertainty and what could be done to reduce the mm. uncertainty. I mean, I, I've, I've said that I think there are actually four questions that mm. the science advisor should mm. ask themselves. Mm. First is, is the evidence base adequate? Mm. And if it's not, what are you going to do about mm. it? The second is, has that evidence base been understood? Mm. And that's quite important because your job is not just to say, there's the evidence, mm. I'm off, but to make absolutely sure that whoever you're talking to mm. has understood it properly mm. and understood where the gaps mm. are and the risks are and the uncertainties mm. are. And that takes time. And it's going to be a different thing that triggers that understanding mm. in different people. The third is, has the evidence been presented in a way that's relevant to policy? Mm. And that's quite important because it's all very well to sort of Mm. tell somebody the latest bit of science. But if it doesn't link to some potential Mm. policy Mm. outcome, it's sort of interesting but not Mm. relevant. And so that linking it and formulating it in a way relevant Mm. to policy is important. And the fourth is, I think it's useful to always say how science can then be used to monitor whether the policy Mm. is actually having the effect that you think it's going to have. Do you think ministers are more open to... You know, scientific evidence, uh, you know, which comes with maybe that sort of badging than they are to other analysis in government. We've seen quite a lot of, if we look at sort of, you know, the experience of Brexit mm. and, you know, ministers being really quite dismissive, maybe as backbench before they came to government, of some of the 
uh, you know, economic evidence stacking up on that. You know, does you know bring this as scientific evidence, and you're bringing it to predominantly not, you know, not scientifically trained ministers. Do you think they're a bit more in awe of the evidence that you can bring to the table? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, they may be less familiar with it, and that's a risk because you don't want people to sort of just accept mm. it as, as as an absolute truth. You want to understand the mm. uncertainties. Um, I think what what did help during mm. COVID, and I think it's a really important mm. thing for all departments across government, is data visualisation. Mm. So data visualisation tools that allow people mm. to see things mm. rather than just sort of try and look at a spreadsheet or try and look at really difficult, complicated graphs. That really mm. helped, and I think that's an important thing for the future. And actually, there was, there was a great um, paper by Kofi Annan mm. a few years ago on um, his moment when he realised that data visualisation could help him understand Africa as an African better mm. than he'd ever understood it. So I think data visualisation mm. is key. I think you just made some people at the Institute for Government extraordinarily happy oh, by good. that shout out, <laughs> uh, having spent ages trying to up our game on data visualisation and producing stuff actually just representing back to government, government data, but in uh, in chart form. Um, I've got a question here which, follow, which links across to one that I was about to ask from Matthew Holhouse of The Economist. Uh, we talked a lot about COVID, a bit about climate and the challenges there. Um, he's talking about you were tasked by the Chancellor in the budget to do, I think, what are called these, you know, pro-innovation regulation reviews. And we saw some of the first fruits mm. of them at the budget a week or so ago. Just, you know, do you think there's some emerging guiding principles from the work you've done so far that's going to guide the UK's path to sort of, you know, the way it looks at regulation now, we have control over it, which we didn't when we were EU members. Well, there, there are a few things. I mean, I was asked by the Chancellor to, to do some pieces of work. I did remind him I'm leaving next Friday, so I'm going to do bits of work that I can achieve uh, by then. Um, uh, on uh, pro-innovation mm. regulation, and yes, there are some general things that come up. Um, new technologies move at a pace faster than regulation mm. changes. So how, how do you deal with that rapid change where you need experts? How do you deal with the fact that a technology mm. often ends up crossing several mm. regulators? So we had examples where small companies mm. were having to go to 11 mm. different regulators in order to get something done. Mm. How do you deal with the fact that at the very early stages mm. of a technology, you don't actually know enough to be able to regulate mm. And so you need to be really mm. quite flexible. Mm. But as a technology becomes mature mm. and it becomes more established, mm. companies actually want consistent mm. regulation across different mm. countries. They don't mm. want lots of different regulations. Mm. They want to know one way. So there's early divergence, mm. later consolidation. So there are some, some themes that are coming out, mm. which I think will be relevant across all areas, which we're trying to come up with mm. some suggestions as to how they might be tackled. And I was very interested in your life sciences review that you effectively you know, said if a drug or treatment's been approved by another big credible regulator, we don't have to sort of replicate that completely in the UK. I think that was one of the things about, you know, almost passporting through if the EMA or the FDA maybe have said, or the Japanese regulator said yes, then do we need to do all of that and free up resource? You know, was that just sort of resource constraint that actually, you know, we just you know that's the way of establishing our new niche of uh, attracting people to the UK. Well, I think, I think behind that? Th- there's a whole lot of new things happening if you take that particular mm. example. So you take what's happening in medicines, things like cell mm. and gene therapy, mm. and new things that require mm. huge amounts of expertise. Mm. 
And nobody's really great at regulating. Mm. But that's something that we should be really good at. How do, how do you become the regulator that starts setting the standards for that? There are other things which, um, you know, frankly, it would be a bit surprising if you come mm. up with massively mm. different views mm. between the FDA, the EMA, the MHRA, the mm. Japanese regulator. And is it possible to just mm. say, well, actually, if somebody else competent mm. has done it, we accept it. And that's really what the MHRA mm. was really effective mm. about um, being flexible mm. on that during COVID, mm. where I remember talking to June Rain, who leads the MHRA, mm. and said, if a trial has been approved mm. for the United States, do you need to see all the paperwork redone in the MHRA mm. form? Or could you just take that and mm. say, okay, we'll look at mm. that as it is? Mm. And she said, oh, of course we can do that. And it seems to me there's more of mm. that that can go on to free up the time mm. to really put the effort mm. into the things that are difficult. I have to say, it looked very sensible to me, but uh, that's just my view. I've got one or two more questions, but I'm going to go to questions, and I've picked up some of the ones online. So let's just have a batch of three. If you could just tell us who you are and if you want uh, any affiliation that's relevant. So let's go there, there, and then there in a very efficient way of doing it. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my name is Maru Mormin. I'm from the University of Oxford. And I was very curious about something that you said right at the beginning, that um, the job of a scientific advisor is to give evidence, informed advice, and not opinion. Now, that strikes me as a very uh, black and white uh, categorization of evidence-informed advice, because in example, in the case of COVID, where there was so much uncertainty, is it possible really, is it really possible to say that um, your advice was value-free when there was so much uncertainty and you have to make a value judgment as to how to present evidence? Thank you. Let's go just 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 in front, Alex. Yeah. Uh, Chris Smythe from The Times. Nice to be not asking this question over Zoom uh, for a change to you, Patrick. Um, if I can ask you just two quick things. One is you, you expressed a sort of dissatisfaction with the rhetoric of following the science. And the current government talks a lot about science as well, but in a different way, primarily as a source of economic growth, by which often they mainly mean technologies. Is, is that... Uh, do you welcome that, or do you think there are also risks about seeing science again solely through the prism of economic growth? And if I could just quickly add, if this were one of those pandemic press conferences at the height of restrictions, and I'd asked you if it was okay for a company to hold a leaving due for the sake of morale, what would you have said? Chris, that's have, so that's predictable. That's so predictable. We, we wondered who would ask that question, but anyway, yeah. so, uh, yes. Thanks. Margaret, actually, from SCT, I was also on the board of the Treasury for a few years. Um, I think two things. First thing I want to say is I think that what's really impressive and we should all thank you for is what you've done behind the scenes to raise the quality of science, raise the quality of science in policymaking, and actually change, I think, for the long term, the view of science in government. Um, my question is... In doing that, you must have learned a great deal about how to influence the centre. And that's always a bit of a mystery to people who are trying to do things across government, the way Number 10 works, the way Cabinet Office works and the Treasury. Can you pass on any learning to others who are coming after you that might be useful in that respect? And the the Treasury's always been a bit of a holdout against having a real chief scientific advisor, haven't they? So the, the, the church has always, treasury, always yeah, been yeah, a bit yeah, of a sceptic, yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah, yes. and I don't think their areas of research interest are public or they're very thin. They took a long time to publish them, I think. So 
Okay, let me. Uh, so, so the point about opinion free and, and opinions versus advice, let me just be clear. The job of the scientific advisor is to make sure that you, to the best of your ability, present the science as you see it with the uncertainties. It's not to give a policy opinion. So it's the policy opinion bit. I mean, you may say, you know, here's the evidence as I see it. I think probably this means it's going in this direction, or here are some scenarios. And by the way, those scenarios help you understand what the potential outcomes of your policy choices might be. It's not to say, I think this is the policy. And one of the lessons I learned during COVID is the louder the voices, the lower the evidence base. So when you saw most, most uh, very dogmatic assertions mm. from different sides, it was because the evidence base was pretty much non-existent. And that is the job of the science advisor, to tell politicians that mm. is the case, that the evidence base is mm. uncertain mm. and weak, and therefore mm. a policy decision would be based on something other than that. Mm. Um, economic growth and science, uh, it is the case that you know, seven out of ten biggest companies in the world and fastest growing companies are technology-based companies. And um, it is the case that the UK has a brilliant scientific base and a reasonably good startup base now and a rather poorer record of turning that into scaled companies that can grow. And if that were changed, that would be a big economic uh, success story. So I'm, I'm I'm very pro the idea that there is an econ- big economic opportunity here. It's clearly not the only mm. economic opportunity, but it is an important one and and one that uh, I think does emerge from um, a science base which uh, which then in turn would be funded by economic growth. So I think I think yes, I'm supportive of the idea that that's an economic so, growth story. Patrick, can I just come in in on a question related to Chris's question before you get to the party question? Or work event question. Um, we saw the machinery of government change, which the sort of most interesting and slightly unexpected <laughs> bit was the creation of this new Department for Science, Innovation and Technology as part of the sort of Prime Minister's view that this was going to be a source, going a bit to Chris, maybe of, maybe of growth or whatever. Do you think that's great that science now has a sort of cabinet minister with a science label around their neck at the table? Or are you slightly... Do you see a risk that, you know, they do science and the rest of government can just say, well, DSIT does science, we right. don't need to think about it? I mean, yeah, how was the thinking behind that machinery of government change? Well, let me, let me take you back one step mm. before that, which was the formation of the National Science and Technology yeah. Council, which is, I think, the key step, which is there is now a cabinet committee mm. chaired by the Prime Minister that deals with science and technology across government. That is the important thing for exactly yeah. that reason, that every single department mm. needs to think about mm. science and technology and how it impacts what they do. And that needs mm. an all-of-government approach and it needs mm. prime ministerial authority. Mm. So that formation of the NSTC, mm. and you know, the analogy I would mm. have is National Security mm. Council. Mm. You know, I mean, this is, this, this yeah. is on a par in terms of what needs to happen. Mm. The formation of a department... Mm is really critical because it does all the things that don't fit into Mm. a department that has Mm. a transport mission Mm. or a defence mission Mm. or a health mission. And that's the things like funding the science base Mm. in the UK, making sure that uh, the approach to specific Mm. skills for science and technology are Mm. properly led by DfE, making sure that um, you've got uh, the right levers for investment Mm. in startups Mm. and scale-ups and so on, working with Treasury. So that department has... A bit which is a classical mm. department bit, but it has a cross Whitehall uh, activity as well. 
to make sure that all of the underpinning bits mm-hmm. work in other departments. So, yes, I, wel- yeah. I welcome it. And going to Margaret's question, is that then strong enough, if you like, to sort of, you know, achieve that sort of, you know, central influence? Is it decent links into the Cabinet Office and the Treasury strong enough to actually promulgate that cross-government role? It's quite often yeah. quite difficult in a line department trying to influence other ones unless you have strong backing from well, no, again, that's the centre. Well, again, that's why the NSTC is yeah. so important because that's the prime ministerially chaired number 10 committee that actually you know, then gives that authority right the way across government. And um, Margaret, in answer, answer to your, your, your question, I think it's really important as the government chief scientific advisor, that you have access to number 10 mm. and the treasury. And um, I'm afraid there's no magic to that mm. other than making sure that you develop the right relationships with all of the people that are the gatekeepers of number 10 and the treasury and make sure that the advice and the input you give is seen as valuable because then you'll be asked for. And I, I, you know, it sounds... Like not a very satisfactory answer, but it's the reality of how things how things work. And did you find the Treasury good people to do business with? <laughs> I, we were very fortunate in Treasury, I think, to have uh, Philip Duffy as the Director General who mm. covered science. And Philip's going off to be the head of the Environment Agency, mm. but he is a superstar and very, very pro-science and technology and a close ally and came to our chief scientific advisors' network meetings. Maybe that would be a great job for a someone's science credentials to do. And because Chris will never forgive me if I don't, uh, Chris's, quest, Chris's other question on what advice you would have uh, given if you'd been asked about uh, work events. Well, I've been pretty clear. I'm on the public record of saying I think the, the, the advice was there for everybody and everybody should follow it. Okay, Uh, let's go into the room again. I've got some more questions coming in online, but yes, there and there. Oh, millions of them. Okay, we'll try and do two more rounds in the room, but I've also got some people asking questions online. Um, uh, Ian Abrahams, um, Skylight Risk and Validation Consulting. The evidence base for climate change is clearly very, very strong. What are the key challenges for the UK going forward to try and meet to genuinely meet its, 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 not only its commitments, but to, you know, act, you know translate that in, into uh, action over the next decade. Do you want me to take that? Yeah, uh, why not start on that and then we'll move the mic over there. Um, going back to... Sorry. Um, going back to something you were saying, um, uh, Sir Patrick, about the um, science in the civil service... Uh, more widely than scientific advisors. You, you mentioned that there was now a target of, I think, 50% for a STEM degrees in, in uh, fast stream recruitment. Um, looking at it perhaps even a bit more widely than that, um, do, we ha- do you think that we still have a major culture problem in not perhaps just the civil service, but also uh, the upper echelons of industry outside. And in, in particular, um, when s- selecting people, for example, I mean, I'm conscious of somebody who was a member of the civil service sometime with a maths background, uh, that um, when you looked at the selection process, you were expected to have a reasonable, what I would call a reasonable general knowledge of things like um, history, business, and so on. But I don't think anybody was expected to have any knowledge of science who was, say, a history graduate, for example. And actually, 
if somebody knows nothing about the basics of science, they're arguably not educated sufficiently to be a civil servant in any uh, okay. level. Thanks. And if we'll just take one more. Yeah, I think there's somebody else in that line. Yes, just down there. It's gentleman down there, or the lady down there, and then we'll try and do another round. Yes. Thank you. Claudia Tamer from Connect Public Affairs on behalf of the Protect Pure Maths campaign. Um, You mentioned that you see um, certain disciplines that are particularly um, highlighted within centre of government that need to be promoted, whether that is physicists or uh, chemists. Um, What kind of skills would you like to see highlighted um, by government? What kind of skills would you like to see come into the fast stream other than broadly just STEM? Um, is there just a need for digital skills? Is there a need for data skills? What should we be seeing in our candidates? Yeah, we've got quite a few questions coming in about data specialists okay. and things like that, which I think has been recognised as civil service as a gap. So, um, so, the, so the, the, the net zero target is a very tough thing to reach. And um, I'm very clear that what needs to happen is a move to very, very clear planning. In other words, if you work back from 2050, you know, you know what you need to achieve by 2050. And frankly, you know which technologies you're going to be able to do it by because dreaming that the new technology is going to come along now and save us for 2050 is wrong. Um, so we can see the types of technologies. If you work back from 2050 and say, well, you've got to have those things in place at scale by 2050... That's going to take 20 years to get things Mm. at scale. So that brings you to 2030. Mm. And that tells you that the decisions you need to make are now in order Mm. to do this. And so what I've argued, and it was in the Skidmore review as well, is that there should be a roadmap Mm. starting at 2050, working backwards, that actually starts to document the decision points that need Mm. to be made. And that in turn should determine the R&D that needs to be done today in order to make that decision point. How will you make the decision on hydrogen for heating or heat pumps or whatever other choices you wish to make and by when must you have made that decision if you're going to get it to 2050 so i think this is a a massive systems engineering problem now and i've argued and uh, argued again recently that we need systems engineers in government really making sure this is managed properly and do you think with the sort of, you know, we've been talking about the backgrounds of policymakers, backgrounds of ministers, do you think they're going to be capable of understanding the things that they need to understand if, say, they've got to take a decision, I think, by 2026 on hydrogen or not? Do you think, you know, we've got the right support structures to enable ministers to take a decision that they genuinely understand? Um, yeah. Well, there's some very good people. For the country. There are some very good people in, in the department yeah. who do understand yeah. these things. But I think we need more engineers in there. Yeah. And, and I think it is engineers in this case, yeah. more than scientists. It's an engineering problem mm. uh, which requires a systems engineering mm. approach. Because the other problem mm. is that there are, tr- there are competing demands on the same mm. thing. So a decision on an individual area might look terribly sensible, yeah. but it has another effect yeah. over here. And it's really true for net zero. Land yeah. use is the classical yeah. example. The number of people who think yeah. they're using the same yeah. piece of land to solve a net zero problem is enormous. So we've got to be able to decide that. Do you think ministers get the scale of the challenge they've set themselves on net zero? Um, I don't think governments around the world do. And I think it... it as I say, I worry that if you do a forward planning approach, mm. I, I need mm. to make a plan, mm. you can put that off. If you do the backward planning approach mm. from 2050, 
you quite quickly realise that you have to make those decisions now. And I, th- I think mm. that is what we need to do. And I hope the government... That was the sort of thing that. that came out in David Mackay's book, wasn't it? That yes. he wrote yeah, he was, he was, a real yeah. eye-opener yeah. about the challenges. Yeah. So we've got um, some questions here about sort of, you know, uh, sort of, you know, skilling up people. Yep. You know, I think sort of how do you make sort of people maybe not with um, scientific backgrounds, scientifically literate enough to be in government and, you know, to understand the advice... You know, and what, uh, what, you know, what skills, if we drill down beyond STEM, do we really need? So on the, on the selection process, I completely agree, and we've, we've looked at that. As I said, we, don't, we don't see people with STEM degrees being weeded out by the selection process mm. in, a, in a negative sense, but I think there are some things that need to be looked at on the mm. selection process to get that right. Um, and I think we need to also not just... I mean, bringing in lots of more people with STEM will be good, mm. but it's going to take a long time for them to f- filter up to become permanent mm. secretaries. So mm. There's a lot to be done about educating people along the way. Mm. And there are some fantastic mm. things that are going on. Mm. Um, the Office for National Statistics mm. and the Chief Statistician mm. have done a brilliant data course uh, that people mm. are, are taking that I think is, is helping educate mm. everybody. I think things like data visualisation tools help because it makes mm. it easier for people to understand uh, what's being asked. So I think all of those things are important. And I, I, I agree, it's, you know, you've, you, you've got to see peace snow and, um, and, and, and the two cultures. And I think there is, it's really important that we push on this now to get um, a, a much more blended culture across the civil service of science, arts, humanities. They're all important, actually. Mm. And it's, not, it's definitely not mm. that you need 90% of people in the civil service with STEM. You need this mm. mix across... And in terms of the skills, I think it varies by, from, across departments. But there's one skill which you've alluded to, mm. which must be crucial, which is data and digital skills. Mm. I mean, those are really, really important right the way across. I've uh, got a question I wanted to put at you online from Anonymous. Um, about resilience, um, you talked a bit about, you know, in a sense... You could say we were lucky in some of the aspects of the pandemic response. You and Chris Whitty, who were incredibly well-placed to give really authoritative advice, the connections that enabled us to bring in Kate Bingham and things like that. But as you look forward to all those things that are on the National Risk Register and to perhaps some of the thinness of UK's resilience planning, do you think we're in a good place on planning for those future major risks? And what would you like to pass on to your successor as ways we might strengthen well, well, th- this feels like the Bronwyn Maddox comment that we're not in a crisis now, and I'm going to say it's all okay, and it's not. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I- I'm going to pick on one area, which is the importance of data in managing emergencies is very obvious, and it was mm. very clear at the beginning of pandemic that we did not have good data systems. Mm. You know, we did not know how many people were in hospitals with mm. what and how we could track that, and it took a while mm. to get those systems in place. And what I have said, and I'll say repeatedly, Mm. is the top 10 things Mm. on the National Risk Register Mm. you need to dissect in exactly Mm. the same way and ask, what's the data you're going to need Mm. in order to be able to make a decision? Mm. Who owns those data? Mm. How would those data flow and be interoperable? Mm. Where would they be analysed? And what would the output Mm. look like in terms of decision-making? And there's now a... um, very good sort of digital Mm. situation Mm. centre set up in the centre of government that can handle all of that. Mm. But you still need to go and ask the question, who owns the data? Because very often what you find is that data owned by pockets Mm. of individuals Mm. or groups who quite rightly think that they've Mm. got some duty not to Mm. share those data. 
And that needs to be sorted out in advance of an emergency, not during an emergency. And I just wondered, reading Kate's book, whether we also needed almost for each risk to have a sort of list of who we would try to call in as, you know, if we've not got all those skills sitting in government waiting for the crisis, as you were saying, we obviously need people, yeah. whether we should know who we would you know, want to try and engage or what sorts of people we would need to... Well, from a science point of view, we do have that. I mean, we have We have have, have, uh, the the list of people that we would call and how we go about getting them. I think from an operational point of Mm. view, uh, I think that's presumably also in place, but I'm not so familiar with that. Uh, Let's have another couple of questions in the room. More and more people. We're not going to get to you all. I've got a gentleman there who's been asking for some time, and then we'll come back to the two people at the back of the room. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Paul Diamond, Foreign Office, retired. If you accept that science is global, how would you like to see the FCDO and its uh, international network uh, develop in terms of helping you and your colleagues? And second, uh, do you have any comment on the value of understanding behavioural science in Whitehall? Okay. Let's, Let's move that. I'm going to throw in a question about Horizon, by the way. So I just want to say, yeah, what are the pros and cons of rejoining Horizon? Uh, yes, gentleman there, yeah, and then gentleman in front of you. Sir Patrick, do you think we'll ever see the day that the chief scientific advisor is an artificial intelligence? <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be the last question, and then the then jump right next to you, Alex. Yeah. Thank you. Ed Myers from the Centre for European Reform. Um, I wanted to go back to the uh, issue that was raised earlier around kind of regulation of uh, new technologies and your suggestion that there be a degree of forbearance. Uh, because I think like a different approach is definitely being taken in Europe on a lot of these issues. And in fact, we've seen mm. companies kind of say, yes, we welcome mm. regulation on artificial intelligence as long as it's kind of principles-based and focused on systems, not outcomes, because we can't know everything right now. But at least it gives us the, um, you know, the, the safeguards mm. to know what an acceptable way to innovate using this technology would be and, and, and to deploy it. And it seems in your report you've taken a different approach, and so I was wondering, you know, how you think about businesses that um, that advocate for that sort of approach and say, well, at least it gives us certainty. Okay, let's let's take those. So, I don't know what exposure yeah. you had to the FCO science networks. Uh, well, a, a lot to the science and innovation network, and um, I, I think that we could be far smarter about how we use science links across the world uh, for diplomacy as well, because Mm. it's much easier Mm. to have science-to-science contacts than it is to do a new trade Mm. deal, and one may precede the other. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I think there is uh, a huge need to be part of um, proper scientific relationships across the world, by which I mean funded, structured Mm. things. That's why Horizon Mm. is so important. It provides an easy way to get structured relationships. It provides scale. I mean, mm. you can't possibly mm. replicate the scale of things that go on in Horizon with a domestic programme. Mm. We just don't have enough. Why funds. is the government then seeming to sort of slightly, you know, say it's got to think about this? Because an awful lot of the lobbying from your scientific colleagues is just, yep. now you've cleared that Northern Ireland sort of thing out of the way, it's an absolute no-brainer to sign up instantly, you know. Well, I think I think ministers are going to have to mm. think about um, value for money mm. issues. I mean, because the deal that was agreed whenever it, whenever 
two years ago. Yeah. Clearly, two years have gone by, so they're going to have to think about what that looks like so just going forward. Five, seven. Um, but I think, you know, yeah. I've been very clear about this. Mm. I think we should be part of a rise. I think it's a really important mm. scheme. And I think there are other opportunities around the world mm. as well. I think there are opportunities mm. linked with countries like mm. Japan more effectively on science, which we, which mm. we haven't done. So uh, uh, and now is definitely a time to be global on it because there is a, um, a big need mm. to get uh, more than just what we can do internally in the UK. Uh, artificial intelligence, um, uh, I did actually, after mm. chat GPT emerged, mm. uh, I asked it to write a letter to the Prime Minister on a certain area of uh, science advice. What would it look like? And it, it you know, it structured mm. it quite well. It did, the content was a bit ropey, but the, uh, <laughs> but, the, but the structure was quite a good structure, actually, for how that might look. Um, and then I'm reminded of uh, Sidney Brenner, uh, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, now sadly gone, who was um, full of uh, interesting quotes. And, and his, 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 his one that he kept saying is, I'm fed up with all this artificial intelligence. I'd like some real intelligence, please, <laughs> was his, uh, his quote. Um, uh, on the different approach to regulation, I, I think we're very clear that, that, that harmonisation is important. And for exactly that reason, that you've got to have some. But, but there's no point trying to harmonise at the very early days of an of a, of a technology when you don't understand the technology. So at the beginning, you can be more open and actually you can start to set those standards and trends. That's what we're trying to say. And later on, and you can't leave it too late, you've got to harmonise because companies just want some certainty and want to know that you know, they're not going to have to do things slightly different all around, slightly you, differently all around. Do the you world. think ministers get that? Because that is the message they've got repeatedly on uh, regulation and convergence and things like that from business, and yet seems slightly, or in the past was slightly reluctant to do that and thinking that, you know, bespoke is best? Well, we've made that very clear in the first letter and we're going to make it clear in a subsequent letter as well that convergence becomes important as technologies mature. Okay, I think... I fear that we might have time for one last question, she says, eking it out to the last minute. So uh, I'm going to leave that to Alex to choose. There's a gentleman down there who's just snuck under the barrier. Wait for the microphone, though. Uh, Devni, it's a lecturer at IES. Um, I was intrigued about your upskilling by 2050. And um, it seems that the current approach is to get more people who have studied hard science and understand it well. But what about, in addition to that, um, the business of educating people who are already in the civil service, um, something around really like science appreciation. So it's not the whole gamut, but it's a scientific theory and all those, the methodologies and so on. So people are more, people are not impervious to science. So I studied law, but I have a great interest in art. And what if you converted people from just being artists to lovers or appreciators of science, might that help to get capacity? Okay, I think we've got your point. I have to say, when I went, I haven't worked at the Treasury where you could easily challenge the economist. I went to DEFRA where, I have to say, you know, I was a bit frightened of engaging with scientists with my excellent chemistry uh, O-level. So, uh, yeah. you know, it, it is, our it, ministers were in a similar box. It, it is a really important point, and that's why I said earlier on that actually upskilling the rest mm. of the civil service is mm. part of this. It's about mm. how you enable people to be good customers, mm. good interactors with science, and there are now lots of 
courses. I mentioned mm. the uh, great data mm. course that's there, but there are other courses as well, and there's some um, MSCs and so mm. on that we put in place to try and do that. But it, it absolutely is part mm. of it. I mean, you don't want everyone to be a scientist, but you'd like everybody to be able to do, interact with scientists mm. and to communicate and ask the right questions mm. of scientists as well. So that is obviously important. Okay, we're going to finish on that note, and it's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to have the opportunity to ask lots of questions uh, of a very unintimidating scientist. So, Sir Patrick, thank, thank you, you very much. And could you all join me? <laughs>